My name is Melissa, and this morning I'll be reading from John 16, beginning in verse 16. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean, a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. Do you now believe? Jesus replied. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. What a passage, isn't it? It's a pretty serious passage, a pretty serious message this morning. The disciples are kind of frantic, aren't they? We now see that you don't even need anyone to ask you questions. We're not really sure what to say. This is all quite confusing. Would you please comfort us? They're overwhelmed by the reality of what seems to be finally setting in. 
And Jesus closes out his very long discourse that occupied three chapters from John 14 all the way to John 16 with these final words of instruction to his disciples just before he's arrested. These are the last words that he says to his disciples before he's arrested. And you heard the final words, in this world you will have trouble. In me, you can have peace. Take heart, I have overcome the world. Take courage, literally it says. Take courage, I have overcome the world. Again, though, this is the end of a really long uh, three-chapter discourse in which Jesus is preparing the disciples for his coming death and for the challenges that they're going to face. I want to just take a moment to kind of recap where he's been because uh, all that he just said comes as a result of all that he's been saying for the previous chapters as he's giving this long instruction for his disciples. It began way back in chapter 14 well, when he says that I'm going to my Father and I'm going to prepare a place for you that you could come be where I am going. He says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and I am the way to the Father. You come to me, you go to the Father. And he goes on to say in John chapter 14 that uh, he's going to send to us a counselor, one who would be a helper to us, that we wouldn't be left as orphans. And we spent a fair bit of time over these past number of weeks talking about the Holy Spirit's presence and his ministry to our lives. And it began there in John 14 as Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. Wow, what a promise. I will come to you. You ever feel like an orphan? Even if you never were, you ever feel like an orphan in this world? I'll come to you. I, I feel that way at times. I will come to you and give my Holy Spirit to you. And as I give my Holy Spirit to you, you will be sustained. He goes on in chapter 15 to talk about this beautiful metaphor that he is the vine and we are the branches. Someone help me. What good is a branch for if it's not connected to the vine? Nothing, Nothing right? Okay, so interestingly here, uh, branches, us, we can do a lot of good things outside of the vine, can't we? We actually can do a lot of good things outside the vine. We just can't do anything of lasting spiritual value outside the vine. We're good for nothing spiritually outside of Jesus. So Jesus is telling his disciples as they're coming to a period of pain, you got to stay connected to the vine because a branch without the vine can do nothing spiritually. A branch without the vine can bear no fruit that lasts for eternity. And so you abide in me, he says, and I give my life-giving, nourishing sap to you, and then you can bear a whole lot of fruit, and you go through the various challenges that are inevitably coming to you. And he says that so critically, he says that so critical through the remainder of chapter 15, because you remember in the back half, half of chapter 15, he tells his disciples that what's coming is the world is going to hate you the same way as they hate me. And I, I do really appreciate Jordan's word a few weeks ago that he said probably for most of us, the word is going to be resistance even more than hatred. If we follow Christ, we may not be hated. We might. We might. But over time, we will experience some resistance if we're serious about following Christ. And as we do, it's going to be absolutely critical that we are getting the affirmation that we need from being connected to the vine, being connected to Jesus himself. Then Jesus goes on in chapter 16 to say that part of the way this happens is through the gift again of the Holy Spirit who first would convict us of any ways that we've missed the mark, 
that we've got off course, that we have failed to follow Christ, He would convict us of our sins, and we would regularly get right with God. Do you regularly keep short accounts with God such that you admit to Him the ways that you fail? And you keep short accounts with other people that you admit to them the ways that you fail. This is part of the ministry of the Holy Spirit to us, to convict us those ways. And if we always say no to that, then perhaps we don't have the Holy Spirit in us as much as we would like to think that we do. Because He convicts us of our failures that we would get right with each other and right with God. And then He guides us into truth. He guides us into truth and He guides us into mission that we would make a dent for the kingdom of God. It comes out of this posture to say, God, I want you. I, I want you to direct my life. I, I need your guidance. I need your Holy Spirit. Would you please show me the way? All of that is a preamble to what he's saying today, that trouble is coming. Trouble is coming for all of us. And he says, I have overcome it by the resurrection. Good news is this. Jesus has overcome our trouble ultimately by his resurrection, and he has overcome such that we would have joy and peace in the midst of the sorrow that is inevitable, which we will experience here in this world. Jesus is telling his disciples that there are like three things that we can count on here on earth, death, taxes, and suffering. Happy Sunday, disciples. And yet, and yet, I have overcome. I have overcome, and if you're in me, so also you shall overcome. This is the word of Jesus as we enter into this last section of John chapter 16 before Jesus prays for his disciples in John 17, that's next week, and then he is arrested. I want to talk to you today about two great promises amidst our anguish. I've already stated them, but they're these. Resurrection joy will overcome certain sorrow. And then second, resurrection peace will overcome certain loneliness. The first one is this. Resurrection joy is greater than, it will overcome, and it's actually greater than our inescapable sorrow. Sorrow is inescapable in this world. It is certain, 100% for all of us, we can expect it, right? Amen? Okay, we hate it. Nobody wants to say amen to that. I don't either. But we can expect it. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you're serious about following Christ, you might face more. Because there is a cost to real discipleship, isn't there? Now, there's this irony throughout this passage. The disciples are perplexed by this see-me, not see-me language that Jesus is talking about. He knows that he's going to the cross. He knows that his disciples are about to scatter all over the place at his hour of greatest need. And even as they're about to leave him when he needs them, he's trying to comfort them. Look at verse 19 to 22. Again, here in John 16, which we just heard in full. But John 16, 19 to 22, Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. And so he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no, lo no, lo you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. 
A woman giving birth to a child, he gives this illustration, a woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time for grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Really, when you break it down, the message is pretty simple. Jesus is saying here that you're about to weep because I'm going to the cross. And while you mourn over the fact that I am dying and I am being rejected by, by this world, and you see me suffer the way I'm about to suffer, you're going to mourn, and simultaneously the authorities in the world of the Jewish kingdom and the Roman kingdom of that day, they're going to rejoice. They're going to celebrate while I go to the cross, even as you cry. But it doesn't stop there. In a little while, on Resurrection Sunday, a few days later, uh, you're going to laugh like you ain't never laughed before. Well, they're going to grind their teeth. The world's going to grind their teeth in a way that they've never ground it before. So hold on in the midst of the anguish that you are about to experience. He's preparing them that it's kind of like a woman in labor, extreme pain followed by an ecstatic, transcendent experience of joy in holding this child near to her chest. This is how the Christian life goes. It's grief mingled with joy. It's pain mingled with promise. Now, the last time I checked, you do not want to ask a woman in labor if she's ready to have another baby. That's foolish man of the year award. Don't ever do that. But a crazy thing happens really quickly after that baby is born. She's not thinking about that intense pain anymore. All of a sudden, the most beautiful experience of transcendent joy is hers. And all of the pain from the previous nine months is gone. And Jesus is saying this is the way it is between Friday night and Sunday morning. It's grief mingled with joy. You think about the crucifixion, it was simultaneously the worst event in all of history and the greatest event in all of history. God came to the world and you and I killed him. Right? That's basic Christian theology, please. Right? God came into the world and you killed him. I did too. Worst day in all of history. But God came into the world, and he killed death. Greatest event in all of history. Same thing, right? Okay, these go together. It's crucifixion leading to resurrection. And Jesus is just saying, this is the pattern for life. First, the cross. Second, the crown. This is the way it works in God's economy. Now is your time for grief, verse 22, but I will see you again and you'll rejoice and no one will take away your joy. What a promise this is. No one will take away your joy. 
How is this possible that no one would take, our, take away our joy and that in the midst of inescapable sorrow, I'm saying, that's the term that I'm using today, sorrow that's coming to all of us that we should expect as Christians, that even so, no one will take away our joy. I think there's a couple things that we need to do. The first thing is we need to correctly define joy. We need to define joy in contrast to our contemporary ideas of happiness and pleasurable satisfaction. We tend in America, probably tend across the world, but this is the context though that I know, to think of joy as equal to happiness as equal to pleasurable satisfaction, and they're not. Happiness or pleasurable satisfaction are about me getting my pleasure sensors satisfied right now, immediately, more and more, okay? Uh, happiness is immediate, whereas joy is transcendent. Joy is bigger than my present circumstances, whatever they might be. So I could be without a job, but I could still have joy because of things that are transcendent. But happiness is based on, uh, am I getting the delivery modes of things that really bring me pleasure right now? It's the temporary dopamine hit to the brain of pleasure which can be found through all the classic delivery methods of sex and alcohol and drugs and TV and even that second piece of cherry pie. Like all of those things provide a little dopamine hit, okay, and I'm not saying all those things are bad, I'm not saying that, but they provide a dopamine hit that I get immediate pleasure. And you add on top of that the other ways that today we can also get this immediate dopamine hit on top of all the old classic means. We also get it through Netflix and Disney Plus, and we get it through Instagram, and we get it through Amazon.com, and Amazon.com, and Amazon.com, like every day, if we're not careful. There's one contemporary philosophy that was waxing on this, and he said, you know, the greatest threat to modern Christianity, to the modern American Christian worldview, is not atheism or Marxism or Buddhism, it's shopping. And he wasn't joking, he wasn't trying to be sarcastic, he's saying shopping has a way to take us in. Such as we say, I need more. I need more, I need another hit. Joy is way different than that. The world's happiness comes from consumption of stuff and status. The latest phone, the nicest clothes, the most influence. Jesus' joy can be had without stuff or status. It's part of the reason that it's wise for us to regularly fast from all different kinds of things, because gluttony and lust and greed will grant us pleasure, but they will steal our joy, and so they must be actively restrained. Joy is based on transcendent experiences, uh, the transcendent greatness of really important things that God wants us to have and to enjoy that are bigger than our immediate circumstances. So I'll give a couple examples. It's not all religious stuff. It's not all spiritual stuff. When a father's in his backyard throwing a ball with his son, there's some joy going on there, isn't there? When a mother's in the kitchen baking cookies with her daughter, there's some joy going on there, isn't there? And the reason we know that is it, it taps into something that's like this universal human longing across all cultures, across the world, for intimacy with family. 
is way, way bigger than a temporary dopamine hit. And this applies, of course, to our spiritual life as well. We need to correctly define joy as opposed to mere happiness or pleasurable experiences, and we also need proper perspective on our sorrows, whatever they might be. You know that there are some who uh, see this language of victory in Jesus and, and overcomers in Jesus. That's the title, though, this morning, overcomers. And what they believe out of that is that we'll never suffer, we'll never have um, illness, we'll, we'll never go through poverty, we'll never have disillusionment in this world. And there are some Christians who actually believe that, and again, I say this a lot, but you've got to drop that like a bad habit. If you believe that, it will lead you to even more suffering, and you'll be so disappointed when it comes that you could have a crisis of faith. Instead, the resurrection would serve as a perspective for us that would be like an anchor in the middle of storms that are inevitably coming. You see, the resurrection of Jesus actually happened. It actually happened. It's not like a wives' tale. It's not Greek mythology. It occurred in time and space. It's a historically verifiable fact on so many levels. It's a wonderfully attested fact of history. And if it actually happened, it can be an anchor point for us amidst all the sorrows of life. It says that he has victory over the grave. It says that whatever he says is reliable. And he happened to say other things like this, John 14, because I live, so also you shall live. And so just as the cross didn't ultimately define me, so also your sorrow won't ultimately define you. And you hold on to that in the midst of your sorrow. It provides proper perspective that God will get me through this. I can trust everything he said because the resurrection actually happened. It, it enables us to grieve in a different way than the world grieves. We're able to still grieve with a level of hope. We can still have joy because we're always looking back at Christ's resurrection in which he defeated the great enemy, which is the grave. And we're simultaneously always looking forward to Christ's second coming in which he'll ultimately defeat evil. And if you live in these two poles, looking back at the power and the promise of resurrection and at the power and the promise of a second coming that gives you a newfound perspective in the present moment to realize the Holy Spirit is with me and in me to empower me and strengthen me through the sorrows that will be mine in this present moment. This is proper theology applied to our daily lives as we experience sorrow. Henry Nouwen put it this way. He said, joy never denies the sadness, but transforms it to fertile soil for more joy. Joy takes our sadness, takes our sorrow, and in light of the resurrection is able to transform it into more fertile soil for more joy because it's out of the soil of sadness that some of our very best growth comes, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but in my life, the best times of growth for me as a follower of Christ have been right out of the darkest times. Is that true for anyone else in this room? Like right out of the darkest times, it's then that I've needed God. Like it, it's then that I don't just sing the song, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. No, I, I ache with those words. Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. Every hour, I need you. And it's in those times that something changes in me and he's able to refine my character 
and reinforce true and genuine worship. I, I gotta just tell you something that I've been grieving over a little bit. As a pastor, I wonder, have we allowed the past one and a half years to refine us? Have I allowed the last year and a half to refine me? Have I used the suffering that has come as an instrument to remind me of my mortality? Jesus says when tragedy comes, it's a good time to take stock of your own mortality. He says that. Have I used tragedy all around to lead me to reflect upon my mortality? Or have I used tragedy all around to lead me to be more empathetic toward people who are hurting, toward people who view things different than me? Or I wonder, have we allowed the last year and a half, God forbid, to be wasted and turned into the seed of more anger? Well, if we have, it looks like we have more opportunity for the next several months at least, or years, who knows? But I'm telling you, friends, Jesus would have us redeem the sorrow. And it's partly by reflecting upon our own mortality and recognizing the promise of resurrection and then saying, God, would you give me an opportunity to share your love, your resurrection joy with others who do not yet know it? Would you help me to grieve with a level of hope in a different way and not just descend into anger like the rest of this world is descending? May joy in Christ's resurrection make us ache with a smile for our future home. That's proper perspective that we would think in the midst of all that's gone on over the past year and a half about our future home. The death ratio is still one to one. It's coming to all of us. Okay, that's perspective number one. And perspective number two is God has yet prepared a place for us that's far more beautiful than we've ever seen or imagined. And number three, our lives here, whether they be 20, 40, 80, 90 years, they're a dot, right? They're a dot compared to the line of eternity. That's perspective. That's perspective on the resurrection. You combine that with a proper view of joy, and then you can begin to apprehend Jesus' words here as he says, now is your time of grief but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In the midst of grief, no one will take away your joy as you have proper perspective, you live in that and you define joy as opposed to happiness. Now if you lack joy right now, I don't wanna just go give you a bunch of information, I wanna encourage you to pray. I encourage you to look at your sorrow, your difficult circumstances and use those as the seedbed for prayer. God, would you please use these that I would reflect a little bit more on my own mortality as you would teach me to do in the scriptures? Would you help me not to just look to get out of these, but God, what is it that you want to do in me through these? And I ask God that through this, you would increase my joy and you would diminish my anxiety, diminish my anger, diminish my pride, 
whatever else might be getting in the way of maximizing the, this difficult season though, that we're in. Resurrection joy is greater ultimately than inescapable sorrow. And second, I want to tell, tell you from this passage that resurrection peace is greater than inescapable loneliness. Discipleship is really about learning how to discover joy and peace when we're surrounded by a threat. It's about God slowly transforming our bitterness and our anxiety and our anger such that people see the transformation and they would say, oh my God, look how you've changed. Like I remember you from three years ago and I cannot believe how you're responding to this difficult situation with such a sense of serenity. Wow, what has God done? Look what God has done. Now that is possible over the course of three or four years as we lean into Christ each and every day as we abide in him, as we say, speak now, for I, your servant, am listening. As we dwell with him, he can transform us such that our responses can be different in a few years' time and people could say, wow, discipleship is happening. And this can happen in the midst of sorrow and rejection and even loneliness. I think oftentimes about the great prophet Jeremiah in the Old Testament, and if you don't know his story, he wrote the book of Jeremiah and then also the short book of Lamentations, and Jeremiah had, I would say, the worst job in all of history. Mike Rowe would have been very proud of him. Okay, his job was this. He had to tell Israel for 52 years to repent, and he was told by God, Israel for 52 years is going to Ignore every word you say. But Jeremiah, your job is to keep preaching it. In fact, your job is to embody it, to demonstrate repentance, to live in such a holy way that is different from Israel all around you. You need to tell them to repent of their idolatry and their injustice. They're worshiping foreign gods, and they're not taking care of the poor and the marginalized among us. And so you need to tell them again and again to come back to God, to repent of these, but they ain't gonna listen to a word you say. And for 52 years, that's exactly what happened. And in fact, the people of Israel hunted him down. They tried to bury him alive one time. He experienced incredible loneliness and rejection, tremendous sorrow. He was all alone for this one reason, he was committed to proclaiming and preaching the unadulterated truth of God. And as a result, the people rejected him again and again and again. And yet, this is how he got through it. He says, in the midst of that, I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love for us, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Do you realize that that beautiful song that we oftentimes sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness, comes from Lamentations 3, in which the author has been rejected and lonely for 52 years. The Lord is my portion, the Lord is my cup, therefore I have hope. Great is your faithfulness, O God. It's that deep-seated trust that got him through inescapable loneliness. It's similar for the disciples, maybe not quite as bad as Jeremiah, but their immediate threat was loneliness and rejection. Verse 20 says, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. John 16, 20, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. That sounds pretty lonely to me. I'm not sure about you. Everyone else is gonna be screaming with joy and you're back huddled in the upper room crying, weeping and mourning. 
It goes on to say, Jesus says, do you now believe? Verse 31, do you now believe? Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered. You will be rejected, you will be alone, each of you will go to your own home and you will all leave me alone. As he said earlier in this same chapter, he says, you're all gonna be driven away from your synagogue. So these 12 disciples come from little lakeshore towns around the Sea of Galilee that maybe each had 150, 200 people. And they're all gonna be set out from their synagogue, which means they lose not only their place of worship, but they also lose their community. And in many cases, they'd be rejected by their family and their friends. You'll be set out of the synagogue. And not only so, he says to them, you're all going to scatter from me. You're all going to leave me alone. But listen to Jesus' response to, to all this. Even though everyone's going to scatter from you and you're going to scatter from me, he says, but I'm not alone. I'm still not alone. The Father is with me. I am not alone, for my Father is with me. You might all leave me. In fact, you are all about to leave me. At the cross, the only one there was John and three female disciples. The rest of the men all scattered. Yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. Verse 33, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, the disciples are frantic, and Jesus is choosing to comfort them. He's about to die, and yet he chooses to comfort them. This is the character of God toward us as well. I find that one of my greatest fears is loneliness. How about you? Anyone else? I think it's one of the greatest fears that we face in this world is loneliness. And the hard word that I'm saying here is at different times of life, it's inescapable. There's always going to be times in life that we're going to feel like strangers. It's inescapable. Young people sometimes think, if I could just find a husband, I will never be lonely again. If I could just find a wife, I'll never be lonely again. Let's have a little survey of all the married folks in this room. Married folks, have you ever been lonely? Please raise your hand for the benefit of the single people who might think that. Okay, look around, single people. All those who are not raising their hand are liars. Okay, it's coming to all of us at one time or another. I promise you, married folks experience loneliness as well. It's one of our greatest fears, though. There's a 2010 national study on loneliness that indicated 25% of Americans say they have no one to talk about the weightier things of life, not a single person. Many middle-aged men in particular report that they do not have a single friend. However, the same report indicates that they would admit more to being depressed than they would admit to being lonely because of the social stigma related to loneliness. There's now a medical diagnosis called broken heart syndrome. Rejection or loss literally causes stress hormones to flood the body, mimicking a heart attack. Former U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy says simply, the data is telling us that loneliness kills. It's not an exaggeration, and we know this to be true, that many elderly people die in care homes of loneliness. I remember Mother Teresa once saying that there are horrible diseases in India, like the worst disease in the world, polio and leprosy and tuberculosis, and I've been to India and I've seen it, but then she said in the next breath that none of these diseases are nearly as bad as the disease of the West, which is loneliness. 
And friends, this is why we take so seriously at this church the value of life groups, that we would have every person in this church be a part of one spiritual community where we can attack the challenges, the sorrows of life together with a few others that are going the same direction, who pray for us and encourage us and vice versa. We serve each other and we grow together. But even in the midst of the the best forge groups, the best women's life groups, the best couples life groups, you're still going to have periods of life, aren't you? Where you feel like strangers in this world. And in those moments, you got to hear the words of Christ. I'm not alone because the Father is with me. And you're not alone because the Holy Spirit is with you. And in this world, you will have trouble, but in me, you have peace. Take heart. Be courageous. I've overcome the world. There are a couple in our church. Perhaps you remember the names Ralph and Sharon Anderson. Do you remember their names? A number of you? Uh, They passed a number of years ago now, but sweet, sweet couple. And when Ralph was dying of cancer several years ago, Sharon was contemplating loneliness without her lifelong partner, and she said this, I realized that I could succumb to fear or I could surrender to the Lord. I learned to surrender, and amazingly, he gave me peace. That was her experience. After 55, 60 years with Ralph, I I could have succumbed to fear, but instead I chose to surrender to the Lord And surely over time, he took away my fear and he gave me peace. You see, she found what we we really can find. She found that there is one who is more intimate than a spouse. She found that there's one who embraces us in even a more powerful way than a child's embrace. She found that there's one who will be present to us in a way that's even more consistent than a sister's love. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit who would be with us and for us no matter what sorrows we face, no matter what loneliness we go through. In him we may have peace. No matter what we are going through, in him we may really have peace. I just want to close with this. These two great words, joy and peace, are not something that you can kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get. Right? Okay, if you hear that at the end of this message, I've failed. It's not that. They come as we practice everything that we just talked about in John 14 through 16. They are the result of discipleship to Christ. So as you learn to abide in Christ more, The result is you experience Christ's peace. It's as we live with this spirit of speak, O God, for I, your servant, am listening. This is my posture. I'm available to you here at the beginning of the day and throughout the day. I am listening to you. I want to dwell with you. The consequence of that is more of the spirit's presence, which brings more peace, okay? It's the outcome of learning to dwell with God as he is the vine and we are the branch and we dwell with him throughout the day as we practice the kind of things like pray without ceasing that we talk about but we oftentimes don't practice. As we live out the way of Jesus, 
not by saying, I'm gonna try real hard to be more peaceful. I'm gonna try really hard to be more joyful today. I'm gonna smile a little bit more today. Okay, it's not that. It's a consequence of being with the one who gives joy and peace amidst the sorrow of this world. He's victorious over the grave. He's victorious over your sorrow. He says, in me, you may have peace, so take courage. Take courage. I have overcome the world, and he can overcome whatever you're going through today. Let's ask for his help. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your power and your grace to us. We thank you that you are so loving and so gracious. I see how you interacted with your disciples when they were frantic and overwhelmed by the things that Jesus was telling them. And you, Lord Jesus, you sought to set their hearts at ease. And so we trust, God, that you would seek to set our hearts at ease. Many of us are overwhelmed right now with all kinds of sorrow. I know, I see the prayer requests every week, and right now they're overwhelming. And so right in the middle of our sorrow that we're experiencing right now as a church and as a community, we're asking for your help, God. Would you bring us closer to the vine who is Jesus this week? And would you secure a little bit more for us the peace of God which passes understanding? And we ask, Father, that you give us wisdom on where we need to restrain ourselves relative to the pleasures of this world, that we can experience more of your joy, even if it means a few less dopamine hits of pleasure. We need self-control with that, and that comes from your Holy Spirit too. And so again, we just confess our need to you. We need you. Lord, we need you. Every hour, this hour, we need you. Father, grant us your joy. May it be greater than the sorrow that is inevitable in this world. Pray for all my friends here that you grant us your peace to settle us. Even as many of us are lonely or experiencing rejection, would you grant us peace in you, the only true God, in whose name we pray.